the ultimate reason is so he might have pleasure in it and so that he might be glorified. Building the temple is not something that's done out of consideration for the benefits of the people, but primarily out of consideration for Yahweh, his pleasure and his glory. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather, to come before you, to worship you, and to to learn of you through your word. And I pray that you would empower Seth, give all power of your Holy Spirit and the grace to speak your words to us, to, to illuminate the scriptures, and to inspire our hearts to love you more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Good afternoon, everyone, or I should say evening, perhaps. I feel like that was a very fitting song for the word today. I'm very excited to be preaching on this. It feels like it's been a long time coming, and perhaps some of you, if you're interested, can ask me later, but it feels like I've come full circle from from where I was when I started out at Sattler. But before we get into that, I would like to say that since almost as long as I've been alive, my dad has had this hobby of beekeeping. We grew up uh, keeping bees. There are are pictures of my brother Joel and I when we were about kindergarten age in bee suits going out to the hives like little white veiled marshmallows. And one of the things that I learned, one of my impressions from beekeeping for years and years is that bees are good at re- really good at two things. First, they're good at making honey. That's one that might be obvious to, to most people. The other thing they're really good at is dying. And that was discouraging for me as a child growing up. There were many years when when uh, winter would pass and, and spring would come, we might, have, we might have had 11 hives in the fall and then maybe we had four in the spring. Some, some years we lost all of our hives and had to completely replace uh, all of our bees. It was quite a discouraging process. Bees are very fragile creatures. And one of the things that's perhaps most fragile about a beehive is it's really dependent on one bee, the queen. Without the queen, a beehive will very quickly die, will not last long. The queen is the only bee in the hive that's actually capable of reproduction. The queen lays uh, about one egg every 30 seconds, which amounts to thousands of eggs per day. More. Oh, more by a factor of a lot um, than the queen's body weight. However, the hive has to attend to the the queen very carefully uh, because uh, she's so busy producing eggs throughout the day. This is pretty much all she does. She needs a quart of worker bees to 
basically take care of all of her her eating. Uh, they feed her. They take away her waste. They make sure that she's healthy. And they're very attentive to this queen because the hive knows that their existence depends on this one bee. So they have to be very unselfish. They, they all hamper her. They, they make sure that she's healthy because if the queen is healthy, then almost always the, the hive will be healthy. And without fail, if the queen is unhealthy, the hive's days are limited. I would like to contest that the queen bee in a hive is similar to God's presence among his people. And in the Old Testament, there were, there were a number of things that God's people needed to do in order to keep his presence with them. They needed to keep first the tabernacle, and then when they, they built a temple, the temple in good working order, they needed to do all of these ceremonies of ritual purity. They needed to, um, in some cases, re rebuild the temple like we'll be looking at today. Without the temple being in its proper state, God's presence would not dwell among the people and they would suffer terrible consequences as a result. So the book that we're going to be looking at today is Haggai. For those of you who aren't familiar with the book, the central message of Haggai is this call to build God's temple, to rebuild the temple. And in the, in the process of rebuilding it, Haggai is giving encouragement to the people to urge them on to patience in their work. There's some historical context that's necessary for understanding Haggai. So we all know, of course, that Israel and Judah uh, went into exile. Judah went into exile um, in the year 586. And then in the year year 538 you have the decree of King Cyrus which was in many ways the the beginning of the end of well Judean exile it allowed the Judean people to return to Judah uh, and Cyrus actually gave them incredible provisions for rebuilding the temple and their city. He set them with much wealth. The gold and silver and bronze uh, furniture that had been taken from the temple when Babylon conquered Judah, King Cyrus gave this back to the Jews and he sent them back to Jerusalem. And he gave them all this support to enable them to rebuild the temple. He actually says that, that God commanded him to do so. I think it's worth... Um, reading a few verses from Ezra just to get some background for this. So if you want to turn to Ezra chapter 1, we'll just read the first four verses where its decree is written out for us. Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. 
the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. The following chapters in Ezra describe the process of the temple's rebuilding, or at least the beginnings of it. And around that same time, shortly after the Jews return from exile, the sacrificial system is reinstituted and the foundation of the temple is even laid. But in the intervening years, the enemies of the, the Jews stir up trouble. They, they try to get the, the king of Persia to uh, oppose the rebuilding process of, of the temple. And they connive all these schemes and what, what follows in Ezra is, a, is uh, about a chapter of the, the enemies of the Jews plotting against them. And so with this intimidation, the work of building a temple ceases until the second year of the king after King Cyrus, King Darius. The second year is 520 BC. And it's in this year that Haggai's prophecy begins. So now it's been 18 years since Cyrus issued the decree. The sacrifices began again. The temple foundation was laid. And then the work stopped and it just sat there. It was neglected for years. And the people out of fear of their enemies gave up on rebuilding the temple and it's in that context that Haggai speaks. Haggai is obviously among the post-exilic prophets. He's a contemporary of the prophet Zechariah and the book of Ezra records that they preach together but we only have um, Haggai's prophecy in, uh, in this book recording his uh, call for the people to return to the work of rebuilding the temple. Haggai is rather unique among the Old Testament prophets in that he's one of the few people who was actually listened to uh, by God's people on a wide scale. He has a brief but successful four-month ministry. And after four years in 516 B.C., the temple would be complete. Kind of marking the, the more complete end of exile. Haggai has a very simple structure to follow, which I'm going to lay out. We'll just be getting into the first part of it today, but as we go through the book, it will be helpful to have 
the structure in our minds. The book is composed of four revelations, which all have a time reference. Um, and then they say something to the effect of the word of the Lord came to Haggai. And so it, it's broken up into this very clear structure. Um, one writer describes, he, he gives labels to each of these revelations. He calls the first one verses or chapter one, verses one to 15, the call to action. Then in chapter two, there are three more revelations. There's the call to courage, the call to patience, and the call to faith. Today, we're going to be primarily looking at um, Haggai's call to action and the people's response. So with that, let's dive into Haggai chapter one. We'll read verses one to 11. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands." Pretty comprehensive picture of famine there. I think of the focus of this passage. Uh, it, it's it's similar to to that of the the whole book of Haggai, and that it's it's foundational. But more specifically, it's that God's people must build the, His house before they can expect full restoration from exile. God's people must build His house before they can expect full restoration from exile. We'll see this, we'll see God demonstrate this in in three ways. First, he rebukes the people's misplaced priorities. Second, he interprets covenantal warning signs for the people. And third, God offers a remedy and a rationale. 
Let's look at the first section here, verses 1 to 4, where God is rebuking the people's misplaced priorities. The first thing to know is that he addresses the leaders first. And he doesn't, he doesn't let the people off the hook. But if you noticed, there's, there's one word that's given. And then very quickly after, there's, uh, thus says the Lord of hosts, um, again. Um, so Haggai receives two words in this section. The first word comes to Zerubbabel and Joshua alone. God is basically telling them, he's giving them a window into the, the conversations and the mindset of the people. He's, he tells them, this people says the time hasn't come. And I say it's a rebuke because the implication is, look at what your people are doing. Look at how they're neglecting the work of, of building the temple. And he's putting the, the responsibility on them to take action about this attitude that prevails among the people. But he doesn't leave it just with Zerubbabel and Joshua. A detail about the, the time reference here, it says that Haggai gave this message on the first day of the sixth month. And the first day of every month was the new moon festival for the Jews. At this time, Jews would have been gathered in increasing numbers for the religious activities that were to take place. And even though the temple hadn't been rebuilt yet, we know that there was uh, sacrificial and religious activity going on at this time. So I envision Haggai in the temple courts when they're, they're packed to full capacity with all the people for the new moon festival. And in this place, his second word comes in verse 3. And it's clear for the rest of this section that he's talking not just to the leaders, but to all the people. Talks about them dwelling in their paneled houses. He talks about the, the futility that they're all experiencing in their sewing, in their clothes making, in their eating and drinking, in their, in their professions. And he puts the responsibility on all of them when he says that they each run to their own house. So it's addressed first to the leaders, but also to the people. You might be wondering, why were the, why were the people neglecting the work of the temple? Why were they, they building their, why were they building their own houses? And I think the answer has a lot to do with the, political situation that we had talked about earlier. When Haggai introduces the word of the Lord, he uses the term Lord of hosts. And this is, this is a fairly common name for God in the Old Testament, but it occurs with a special frequency in the books, the prophetic books written after the exile, um, books like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. It occurs 14 times in the book of Malachi and four times in these 11 verses. So there's a high concentration. Lord of hosts communicates this idea of power. It's supposed to give the people courage in the face of this opposition that they were facing 
from their enemies. One commentary writes, Haggai believed that there was an authority greater than that of the Persian king. That was Yahweh of hosts. This term, Yahweh of hosts, is used 14 times in this short book. It is also used 53 times in Zechariah and 24 times in Malachi. Whether the term hosts means angels, stars, or the armies of Israel, it is used by these prophets to emphasize God's greatness and might. And this is, as the author suggested, in contrast to King Darius. And not only King Darius, but everyone else who um, might have caused uh, the Jews fear in rebuilding the temple. Yahweh wanted the people to know that he is greater and that in this work he promises to be with them and that no opposition can stand against this ultimate king and this ultimate military leader. So his, even the way Haggai introduces God's speech is supposed to call the people to courage. Even if the initial cause of the people's turning away from building the house of, of God was because of fear, the reason that they haven't returned to the work after so long is, I think, because of their preoccupation with their own houses that he talks about in these verses. From this, we learn that if God's people don't use their resources on his house, they'll end up using those resources on their own houses. They'll end up taking from the house of God and spending on their own pursuits. Notice what he says in verse 4, the rhetorical question, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? We kind of just pass over the phrase paneled houses, but it's actually invoking a very specific concept here. The word for, for paneled is used four other times in the Old Testament, and every single one of them is with reference to cedar. Cedar, wood, was considered a luxury in the ancient world. Another commentator writes, they had finished the walls of their homes with costly woodwork. This was a practice that, which was considered luxurious even for a king, yet they were unable to restore the house of the Lord. Wait a minute, these people are sowing much and, and taking in little. They're hardly clothed. They can hardly feed themselves. They hardly have enough to drink. They're not earning much money, and yet they're paneling their houses with cedar. How are they doing this, you might wonder? Well, the, the answer is, is also contained in, in Ezra. Um, the, the people did have a supply of, of cedar. You don't have to turn here, but talking about the, the previous attempts at rebuilding the temple, Ezra 3.7 says, They, that is Zerubbabel, Joshua, the priests, and the people of Israel, also gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So way back during the reign of Cyrus, they had acquired all of these resources 
for building the temple while they had the support of the political regime. And when the work of the temple ceased, these resources were just left sitting there. So I would contend that the, the people didn't see fit for these resources to go to waste, and so they, they took them instead to build their own houses. That's how they got the cedar. That's how they got this luxury item to build their own houses with. They're taking what should have gone to building the house of God and using it for their own houses. There's some alarming similarities between this and the golden calf incident that's so infamous in Israel's history. The chapters that follow the golden calf incident or the chapters that precede the golden calf incident describe all of the furnishings that are supposed to be used for the building of a temple. And there's a lot of gold, a lot of silver, a lot of bronze described. And then while Moses is receiving these instructions on the mountain, you have the people at the, the base of the mountain getting impatient. They're wondering what's happened to Moses. And they take their, their, uh, gold jewelry and as we all know they they end up making these golden calves with it whereas god in his conversation with moses on top of the mountain is describing all of these gold vessels that the the house of that his house is supposed to contain and you have the people who don't have any other use for these things yet instead they end up using them for their own purposes no doubt those those gold implements they were wearing from the Egyptians were supposed to be used for the making of this furniture that God had described. And so in both cases, you have resources that are supposed to be going to God's house, being diverted to the houses of the people. And for this reason, Yahweh rebukes not only the the leadership, but the people as well. The second thing God is doing in this passage, we talked about his, his rebuke. Now we're going to look at his interpreting the covenantal warning signs in this passage. I say covenantal because the, the language um, in the latter part of this uh, passage is very resemblant of language that's used in Leviticus and Deuteronomy for covenant curses. This picture of sowing much and taking in little, of eating and not having enough, um, and the other things that follow. There's a there's a total of uh, five pictures in that in that one poem, and then more later on when God is describing the drought that He has called for, and they all basically say the same thing: all your efforts are in vain. But they're they're saying even more than that. They're pointing Israel back to these covenant curses and blessings. Israel had already gone through this cycle before, and they were well familiar with the final consequences. And now, having returned from exile, they're once again on this path that leads back to the same place they had just come from. They're experiencing the beginning of the warning signs of another deportation to exile. And this is 
Yahweh's way of warning the people and informing them that there is, is something deeply wrong. The people's present misfortunes are indicative of a deeper problem. God himself, in a couple of places, identifies um, him as the cause of Israel's misfortune. When he says, talking about the things that they bring home, I blew it away, and then later on, I called for a drought. So it's very clear that this is, this is not just some happenstance misfortunes, but this is God's doing. And the scope of it is already staggering. It's, it's crippling. God says that he's, he's brought this drought on all the work of their hands in a summary statement about the, the different aspects of futility that they're experiencing. He mentions uh, in, in uh, three clauses right next to each other, grain, new wine, and oil, which are grapes, wheat, olives, Israel's staple crops. But this is not punitive. As I was saying earlier, this is uh, God is using these covenant curses like wrong way signs on the road, trying to turn Israel back and, and bring them to uh, honor him in the way that he should be honored so that they don't end up back in exile and so that they're actually able to come out of exile. Returning to the analogy of a hive and, and a queen bee, when the queen is, is in a, an unhealthy state, the worker bees are able to tell through a number of things. They, they'll notice in the brood of the hive and the, the newly born bees that there are irregular age gaps, which indicate that the queen isn't, isn't laying as, as she should. Uh, and the queen also puts off these pheromones that all the worker bees can detect to let them know that, that she's in poor health so that the hive knows if, the, if they need to attend to their queen in some way or even search for a new one. And similarly, these, uh, these misfortunes that Israel is experiencing are letting them know through God's interpretation that there is this huge issue with his temple that needs to be dealt with. So God, God doesn't leave them without an interpretation for their misfortunes, and he also doesn't leave them without a solution. In the, the final section, um, in, in the theological center of this passage, Yahweh offers a remedy and a response for the people. I think verse 8 is, is worth reading again. It contains both the main imperative of the passage and the rationale behind that imperative. God says, Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. Even though building the temple has a lot of positive benefits for the people, that's not the reason that God wants them to rebuild the temple. It's, it might be a motivating factor, but the ultimate reason is so he might have pleasure in it and so that he might be glorified. Building the temple is not something that's done 
out of consideration for the benefits of the people, but primarily out of consideration for Yahweh, his pleasure and his glory. However, it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. Yahweh's pleasure and Yahweh's glory mean that blessing flows out from the temple to the people. The restoration of Israel from exile, its full restoration only comes when God returns to his temple. And implicit in these words is a promise that when Israel prioritizes his house instead of their own, their fortunes are going to reverse and their futilities are going to be turned around. So what does, what does all of this mean for us? Well, of, of course, we know that in the, in the new covenant era, the temple is God's people. And this return from exile that's promised when the temple is rebuilt is in a lot of ways um, a fuller uh, fulfillment of what's going on in Haggai. So the, the concept of building God's house can, might feel a little bit a little bit too broad for us. What does it, what does it mean to, to build God's house? We're not literally going up mountains and, and bringing down wood and we don't have a literal furnishings to craft. We don't have a literal foundation to lay, but yet there is still much work to be done. I think there's, there's an answer for us, even in the kind of imperatives that God is giving to his people. They're not very complicated, if, if you think about it. Go walk up a mountain, find wood, bring it down, build the temple. Implied in all of this is that the people knew how to do it. They had the know-how, they had the manpower. The problem is not that they, they needed some kind of um, really detailed instruction or that they needed some skill that they didn't have or resources that they didn't have access to. Really, the, the call for these people is simply to take initiative, to do what they already know how to do. And I think similarly for us, building God's house requires initiative more than it requires technical knowledge. Building God's house requires initiative more than technical knowledge. In the New Covenant, one of the primary ways we build up God's house, seeing as it's, it's God's people, is encouraging one another through our speech or challenging one another. Speaking in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, coming to the gatherings of God's people with a word to share, with something that you're learning in his word. Building God's house is also done through evangelism. Really, the, the applications of this idea, once you grasp the concept of the house as God's people, are, are limitless. But the unifying factor is that what's required is not instruction, but initiative. Many of us, like the, the people of Israel, 
know how to to do this work, but we just don't make time for it. We we have other things to do. We let the the busyness of life crowd out um, the the work of building God's temple, or we're just not we're not um, aware enough. It's not the first thing on on our minds. I think we've all had experience working in different different work culture settings. There are, there are some cultures that are um, very mercenary-like where you have people who are uh, always competing to, to be at the top. There, there are some cultures where no one really takes ownership of the project. There's just this widespread passivity and there are some cultures where there's this creative initiative, there's this group ownership going on, where you have people who are jumping on responsibilities, jumping on initiatives to make things better, not because they are competing with one another, but because they have this shared vision um, and because they, they genuinely care about the results um, of whatever project they're undertaking. And the vision that we're going to see in, in Haggai is for this group ownership, this initiative. And I long to see that more in, in the church here. I think we have it to some degree. But I'd like to encourage us with the picture that's given in, in the following verses. So let's actually look at verses 12 through 15. I think this idea of um, a group ownership is is really powerful in these verses. So after Haggai de delivers his message, this is how the people respond. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And all the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you. I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. As I was alluding to earlier, this is, this is probably one of the most encouraging responses to the word of God found in the Old Testament. Um, it's, <laughs> there are very few precedents to this. Um, one, one of them is the people's initial building of the temple. But in between that times, it's so rare that a prophet comes and delivers a word of God like this, rebuking the people, and they respond in such obedience. And so quickly, all of this took place in only 23 days from the beginning of Haggai's preaching to the time 
when the people began to build the house of the Lord, and their attitude of obedience seems to have begun even before then, as you have first the people who are obeying, and then God stirs up their spirits, and he stirs up the spirits of their leaders, and then you have the people building the temple. There seems to be this this progression where first the people are determined to obey in their hearts, and then God comes and and injects them with this spiritual um, this spiritual motivation to continue what they've already purposed to do. It's not just a, a work of the people here. The the leadership is very important to pay att- attention to. You have in some ways, uh, a prophet, priest, and king trio who are overseeing this work. You have Zerubbabel, who was a Davidic ruler. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, he's in the line of David. And even though he was, he was not exactly a king, he was reigning under uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, and then Darius, king of Persia. He's really the the political leader figure in this story. He's over the house of Judah. And so I think that Haggai intends for us to see this as a Davidic king figure. And then of course you have you have Joshua the priest and Haggai himself, who's the prophet, and they're working together in this instance, which once again is is very rare in the history of Israel. Much more common is that the prophet is delivering the message of, of God and either the, the king and the priest or both um, are disregarding him and, and just doing their own thing. They're going after idols. But in this story, you have all three of them working together and it's that trio, it's that combination of the leadership and the people that brings about the rebuilding of this second temple. There's a concept, um, it's a medieval term, it's known as the munis triplex. It refers to the, the threefold office, specifically the, the threefold office of Christ that emerges as a framework for us in the Old Testament. So, Uh, I said them before, I'll say them again. You have the prophet, the priest, and the king. And in Jesus's ministry, there are dimensions of each of these offices, and he's the ultimate fulfillment of each of these anointed offices that we see in the Old Testament. Here in the priest, the prophet, and the king laboring together, you have a foreshadowing of the coming new covenant reality when the ultimate priest, prophet, king will begin, he'll initiate the work of building this temple and then the remnant will continue it. That's another thing to note is that this people is called remnant later in this passage. It's a new term that's used for them after they start, after they purpose to build the temple and it's not used earlier. Instead, God refers to them as this people. Kind of a kind of a distancing term there. This people. He's not claiming them as his own people at the start of this chapter. 
He's speaking to Zerubbabel and Joshua, and he says, this people, your people. But at the, at the end of, of this chapter, in verses 12 and, and 14, they're called the remnant. And this is, this is very specifically drawing on language that's developed in throughout the prophets of God's people after exile, his, his true people, when all of the, the blessings um, of God that the prophets have, have talked about are going to come. And so with this language of, of remnant, you have another, another sign that's, that's pointing to the ultimate return from exile and the ultimate restoration of God's people, which has been fulfilled and is, is continuing. The work is ongoing in the new covenant era in which we live. There's one more sign at the end of this chapter that's really important for us to, to notice which is God stirring the people. First, they, first they, they set their hearts to obey, but they're not continuing this work of rebuilding in their own strength. God is the one who stirs them. First, he does it with Zerubbabel, then he does it with Joshua, and then he does it with all the remnant of the people. And there's this, uh, it's, not, it's not compulsion, it's not... Um, coercion, but it's this willingness that the people have to undertake this work. They're glad to do it. Now, instead of running to their own houses, they're excited about this new building project. And I think that this is a foreshadowing of the promise of the Holy Spirit for the new covenant era, that we also have a, have a role to play in that we need to, to purpose ourselves um, to rebuild God's house or to, or to simply to build it. But when we do that, it's not us laboring at our own strength. It's not this drudgery. It becomes exciting because God arouses our spirits through his Holy Spirit for the work. So as we, as we think about that, once again, rebuilding, um, <laughs> Or, or building God's temple, continuing to build it as Jesus has begun, is such a multifaceted work. There are endless applications of this, but I would like to challenge us and encourage us to creative initiative. Oftentimes we know what to do. We just don't take the opportunities that we have to do it. And I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound like um, we, we don't do this at all. I've seen some very encouraging examples of this recently, even in um, just different, different ways that people were uh, responding in, in our agape. And so I'm excited to see that God is already stirring our hearts to do this work. But I want to encourage us to think specifically about what are the ways that we can creatively volunteer? What are the ways that we can present ourselves for God's service of building up his house. One thing that's been burdening me recently is the discipleship of, of some of the new believers that we have coming into our church, especially those not from Christian backgrounds. Perhaps you, you can think of some, perhaps some faces come to mind. It's really exciting 
to, to see people baptized and to see them enter the church. But what are we doing with them after they're in the church? Are we still, are we following up with them? Are we, are we making efforts to invite them over for dinner? Sometimes they're, they're not as uh, close to our own cultural background. It's, it's not as easy to connect with. But I think that that's one really important way we can be building up God's house is thinking about who are the people who have just come into the church who don't have the benefits of, of years and years of, of growing up hearing the scriptures and how can we how can we build them up? How can we take care of some of the, the weaker members among us? One thing I'm I'm excited about that we're doing in, in this congregation is um, some of the, the open nights that we're having on, on Fridays. Who's who's stepping up to, to plan those? Um, who is excited about the endless possibilities? Who, who has ideas that they want to see implemented in the church? Things that we don't often get around to that we need to be doing. Well, here's, here's an opportunity to be building God's house. If we'll just take initiative. What about in our, in our agape time when we have this opportunity to, to come with um, a word of encouragement, a teaching, a song, of almost endless other ways that, that we can be bringing something of value and edification beyond just our, uh, our, our weekly itineraries? Or what about opportunities to, uh, to preach or to teach in various settings? Are we jumping on these things? Are we excited about building God's house? Let's be excited. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the work that Jesus Christ has done, our priest and prophet and king. Thank you that he has laid the foundation of a great house. Thank you, God, that we get to be a part of this work of building your house and that you have made it clear to us in the scriptures what we are to be doing. Oh God, help us. We, we purpose in our hearts today to engage in this work. We pray that you would come with your spirit and stir up our spirits within us. God, help us to, to see what a privilege it is to be able to join in this work of building your house. I pray that our um, evangelism, that our speaking to one another, um, that our agapes and, and all of our endeavors would be characterized by this excitement and this willingness to join in this work. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.